0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1, James 1. You'll need a Bible to follow along for our message, so these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, get their attention. They'll get one of those to you. It's marked for you at James chapter 1. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. We'll be looking at James chapter 1. Now, today we continue a series begun four weeks ago, but which was interrupted last week as we had a guest speaker in Dr. Jonathan Sarfati of Creation Ministries International. So I'm going to take a few minutes to remind you regarding what we've covered and for the benefit of those who may not have been able to attend these first two messages. The series is titled, What's God Got to Do With It? And we're exploring the many ways that we forget that God is active in our lives every moment of every day. And therefore, we fail to glean what he has for us in those moments and days. We saw that humanity was made with a God consciousness. That we were created in God's image and with the knowledge of who he is. Aware of his presence and his activity in his world and delighting in him and in it. God made us, we saw, to be interpreters of our world. He gave us the ability to receive his communication to us, and we saw that we are wired for worship. In everything that happens to us, big and small, we are always transacting with God. At all times, we are living corum Deo, a Latin term that means in the presence of God. But we easily forget that, even as believers in Jesus. And if we do not have a relationship with God through Jesus, then we want to forget it. Because, the Bible teaches, we suppress the truth about God in our lives. And either way, the effect is the same. We fail to see what God has to do with it. Now, Two weeks ago, we saw that behind every sin and negative emotion is a lie. And in particular, a lie about God. We were reminded then that God is great, so we don't have to be in control. That God is glorious, so we do not have to fear others. That God is good, so we do not have to look elsewhere. That God is gracious, so we do not have to prove ourselves. In other words, how we handle what is happening in our lives is completely dependent on what we believe about God. And this is why the Bible makes so much of faith, which we have seen is related to the Greek word in your New Testament that is translated sometimes faith, sometimes belief. Many of you know that your New Testament was written in Greek and the same term can be faith or belief. So when you see the word faith in your Bible, you could substitute belief. So the most crucial question for us at all times and in all circumstances is this. What do we believe about God? Do I have faith in God? Of course, God knows the centrality of that question to all of life. And he also knows the struggle that we will have with answering it correctly in the moment, in the fire, in the heat of what's happening in our lives, in the midst of all of our situations, often adverse situations. God knows all of that, and so God tests what we believe about him. Verse 3 of James 1 says the testing of your faith, that is the testing of what you believe, produces perseverance. So God gives tests, but he gives those tests for a good reason. Now, when I was in high school, one of my most dreaded experiences was to hear the teacher at the beginning of a class hour say, class, take out a half sheet of paper. It meant that he or she was going to give a what was called a pop quiz. That was a quiz they hadn't bothered to tell us about in advance. When I attended seminary, I was relieved to learn that the professors there did not give pop quizzes, but God does. Yet unlike in academia where the objective is to test knowledge, God tests faith. God tests what we believe and in particular what we believe about him. And that's because, friends, Christian faith, Christian belief is more than profession. What we believe is to govern the way we live. Many of us are familiar with James' famous words in chapter 2 of this book, if you'll just Turn a page over to chapter 2 and verse 14, where he asks, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way. Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. You see, faith proves that it's alive. It proves that it's real and genuine by what it does. Faith works. Belief behaves. The reality of a living faith is demonstrated by its reaction to various circumstances. And faith is such a vital matter for the child of God that God deems it necessary to put it to the test in order to prove that it's genuine and secondly, in order to make it stronger. That testing often comes in the form of difficult circumstances. And this should be important to you as it is to God. It should be important to me as it is to God. Because as if you've been around here for any length of time, you've heard me say over the years That right now you are in a trial or you've recently emerged from a trial or saying it in the way of my Pikeville, Kentucky background, you're fixing to go into a trial. You're either in one, you recently emerged from one or you're ready to go into one. So what James has to say in James chapter one about God testing our faith with these trials and how we respond to them. And is of vital significance to every one of us. Let's pray then and ask God to help us. Our Father, we're here in your presence because you brought us here. Thank you. Thank you for in your providential overseeing of our lives that we were able to be here. We thank you in the work that you are doing on us spiritually that we want to be here. So that we can praise you, but also learn of you and be changed by you. And so now as we open your word, we ask you to do that work that only you can do. Give it good effect to bring you glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Verse two of James chapter one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance now we have an outline for you as each week inserted in your program if you don't have that out as yet I encourage you to take a look at that where first of all we say this we must respond to trials we must respond to them and then we're going to see a number of things that those trials are but before we look at how we should respond to these trials Let's make sure we understand what we mean by a trial. The word translated trial refers to an external circumstance that is unwanted. External circumstances that are unwanted. A trial is, by definition, a difficult circumstance and therefore unwanted. And because it's difficult, it's possible for us to react to it then improperly. Now, an interesting issue with regard to this chapter of James chapter 1 is that the same word that's translated trial in verse 2 of James 1, if you go down to verses 13 and 14, that same Greek word is translated differently. Notice verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now notice there, you've got five times the word Tempted or tempt or tempting is used. It's the same word that's used for trial back up in verse 2. So when does a trial that God intends to produce perseverance, that God intends to make us better, when does that trial become a temptation that leads to sin? Well, it's when we fail to respond to the trial as we're instructed in this passage. Then we're tempted, contrary to what we're going to see in verses 2 through 5 this morning. Contrary to that, we're tempted to grumble and complain and otherwise disobey. So hear this. The same unwanted, difficult circumstance that God designs to make us better can, in the end, be a blessing to one person and a curse to another. And what's the difference? It's not the situation, it's not the circumstance, it's the same deal. The difference is how we respond. And so the title of this message today, at the top of the outline, you see it says responsibility. And that is because we have the ability to respond to our circumstances in a God-honoring way and we have a responsibility before God to do that. So trials are unwanted by their very nature. But God brings them into our lives in order to produce something good. But depending on our response, that very thing can be a temptation that leads to sin. So we must and we are going to respond to trials one way or another. They're unwanted, but I say in your outline, we must respond to them because they are as well unavoidable. Verse 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So it's not if you're going to face trials, it's when, whenever. It's assumed that you're going to have trials. That's why Job says that man's days are few and full of trouble. That's the way life is in a fallen world for all of us. So becoming a Christian doesn't change that. As a matter of fact, becoming a Christian can actually enhance that, can actually make it more intense. Now Satan is throwing everything he can at you in order to keep you from moving forward in your walk with, walk with the Lord. And so these are unavoidable. It's when, not if they are going to happen for all of us. They're unwanted by their very nature. They're unavoidable, and I say in your outline, they're unexpected. It says in verse 2, consider it pure joy when, not if, you face trials of many kinds. That word face is sometimes translated fall into. When you fall into trials. So, unexpectedly. This adverse circumstance comes along in life. You fall into it. It pictures one going through life who unexpectedly encounters troubles. Word is used in the story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told in Luke chapter ten, where the tra- traveler fell into the hands of robbers. Jesus said, "A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers." Same, same word. That's used in James chapter 1 and verse 2. Whenever you face, whenever you fall into trials of many kinds. So these are unwanted. They're unavoidable. They're unexpected. And they're also unlimited. They're unlimited in their variety. Verse 2 says they are of many kinds. So that means the kinds of adverse circumstances that we encounter as we just go through life, often unexpectedly, can be of all shapes and sizes. Job lost his wealth, his reputation, his family. The Apostle Paul had his thorn in the flesh. Our trial might be a physical illness. It might be marital difficulties, employment problems. The list is endless as to the kinds of things that can constitute these adverse circumstances, these trials, these tests that God brings into our lives, allows into our lives, in order to produce something something good. Let me add here, importantly to that list, it's not just stuff that happens to us that can be adverse. It's It can be people that happen to us that are adverse. Sometimes when we think of trials, we only think about situations rather than people. But those people are part of the situations. And so that can and often is part of the trial. We don't control much of what happens in our lives. And since we don't control the circumstances that come our way, then we need to ask ourselves, is there anyone who does? And of course, the answer to that is, indeed, God does. But the question for us is: Do we believe that? And if we don't control them, and we don't, then why do we act as though we we can? I've heard people say things like this over the years: "Give me a couple months, and I'll have it together." <laughs> as soon as I get through this particular thing, if it weren't for fill in the blank, I could serve God better. Friends, please hear this, and I say this not to be unkind, but just to be direct and truthful to myself and to all of us. The truth is, we don't know what real difficulty is. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2, says, You have not yet suffered to the point of death. None of us has, obviously. There are people who have gone before us who know what real difficulty is. And and hear this, if we can't be faithful to God now, in the relatively light circumstances we are in now, if we can't be faithful to him now, what makes us think we will later when severe trial comes? So how are we to respond to the trials that God brings, but God brings for the purpose of making us better? How are we to do that? Well, we must and we will respond to them one way or another because they're part of life in a fallen world and they're what God uses to test our faith. But secondly, I say in your outline, we can respond to trials with joy. Verse two, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Now, consider has to do with the way we view our circumstances. It means to make a conscious decision To respond properly. So as I think about. As I consider. My circumstance. And I look at it. I view it. From the perspective. Of God. And what God has to do with it. That's going to condition and change my response. And it's going to allow me. To endure this difficulty. Believe it or not. With joy. Now, joy does not mean that the circumstance itself is pleasurable. Again, by definition, trials are not. They're unwanted. They're difficult. The circumstance is not pleasurable. In fact, the very nature of a trial is that it's difficult. It's what lay beyond the circumstance that gives rise to the joy in it. I remind you of our working definition of joy that we've used over the years. As you put together what the Bible teaches about this issue of joy, especially in the four chapters of the book of Philippians, here's an accurate working definition. Joy is this. It's an abiding sense of delight that God is at work. It's an abiding sense of delight that God is at work. He's at work in my life. He's at work in his world. And in the lives of others. And when I recognize that in the midst of this even difficult thing. That God is at work and that God is doing something good. It's then that I can have joy. Although our circumstances may not be good. We can have joy because we know good will come of those circumstances. We have an example of this in Hebrews chapter 12 of the Lord Jesus. It says let us fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus endured the cross, but notice, for the joy set before him. So we have joy not because of the trial, but because of what will become of the trial. And what will become of it? Verse 3 tells us. You can do all of this. Because you know something. You know that the testing of your faith produces, produces perseverance. The trial is designed to test our faith. It's designed to test what we believe. Just as the refinement of gold reveals impurities as well as the genuineness of a metal, so trials test the metal of our faith. And so in the midst of it, whatever it is, it's of many kinds, all shapes and sizes, whatever you've got going on, in the midst of that, ask yourself some questions. Do you believe that God is doing something to you or for you? If you're angry with God or you're bitter, it indicates that you do not trust him. So ask yourself, do I trust God with my circumstances? Ask yourself, do I believe God is in control of these circumstances? If we respond with worry, it indicates we don't believe that God is in control. Do you believe that God is not only sovereign in his control, but that he's also good? See, I've met many people over the years who have been well taught with regard to a sovereign God and that there's not a maverick molecule in his universe that's outside of his control. And so they will say that in the counseling room. I know God's in control. But it's not clear that they believe that this God who is sovereign is also good. And friends, if we respond with anything other than joy at the prospect of what God is going to accomplish, then we show that we do not believe ultimately that he is good. So your thing, your stuff, your junk, everything that's going on in your life, is testing what you believe. And in particular, what you believe in God. In some, do we really believe that in all things, God works? For the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things, God works. Notice all things. And if you go on to read through the end of Romans chapter 8, you will find that the all things includes all kinds, all sorts of difficulties. Most of which are things none of us are going through right now. Most of which are worse than what most of us are going through right now. And yet in all of those things, God works. Now, some of you know that verse by memorizing it as I did as a child in the King James Version. Where it says this. That all things work together for good. Now notice here it says, in all things God works. But when I memorized that as a kid, it was, we know that all things work together for good. So what's the subject of the sentence there? Here, on the screen, it's God. God works. The action is the working, and it's God who does the working. But the way I memorized it as a child, it was all things work. Hear this. Things don't work by themselves. There's someone who makes them work. And the one who makes them work and the one who works it all together for good is none other than our God. God is the author of our circumstances. But God is not the author of. Of our sin. God is not the author of how we respond to that. So when tempted no one should say. God is tempting me. Or put another way. God has placed you. In a certain situation. And how you handle it. Will determine the outcome. How you respond will determine the outcome. So you have a Responsibility. Years ago, when I was working a real job in, as a computer programmer, in the office uh, at the place I was working at the time, they had a bulletin board. And on the bulletin board, I saw uh, an eight and a half by 11 photographed copy with just a, a, a quote on it. And the quote said this, The longer I live, the more I realize... The impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failure, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. I found out later that that quote was from Charles Swindoll. Some of you may know that name. It's a radio preacher for many years. In a similar fashion, <clears throat> some years ago I received an, an email. Someone forwarded it to me with kind of a, uh, an uplifting, motivating uh, story that said this, Life is hard. And I frequently use this oracle of wisdom on our kids and grandkids as they were growing up, and it seems that the older I get, the truer it becomes. A friend shared the following story with me about a man named Michael. Michael is the kind of guy that you love to hate. He's always in a good mood, and when someone would ask him how he was doing, he would reply, if I were any better, I would be twins. One day I asked Michael, how do you do it? Michael replied, life's about choices. Each time something bad happens, I can choose to be a victim or choose to learn from it. I choose to learn from it. Sometime later, I heard that Michael had fallen 60 feet from a communications tower. After 18 hours of surgery and weeks of intensive care, Michael was released from the hospital with rods placed in his back. I saw him about six months after the misfortune and asked him how he was doing. He replied, if I were any better, I'd be twins. Want to see my scars? I declined the offer, but I asked him what was going on in his mind uh, after the fall. As I lay on the ground, he said, I remembered I had two choices. I could choose to live or choose to die. I chose to live. The paramedics kept telling me I was going to be fine, but when they wheeled me into the ER and I saw the expressions on the faces of the doctors and nurses, I really got scared. In their eyes, I read, he's a dead man, and I knew I needed to take action. There was a big burly nurse shouting questions at me. She asked if I was allergic to anything. Yes, I replied. The doctors and nurses stopped working as they waited for my reply. I took a deep breath and yelled, gravity. And over their laughter, I told them, I'm choosing to live, operate on me as if I'm alive, not dead. And he lived thanks to the skill of his doctors, but also because of his amazing attitude. Now, that quote from Swindoll and that story of Michael, the truth is they could both be told at a self-help power of positive thinking seminar. Quite apart from the Bible Jesus. In fact, notice that the Lord is not mentioned in either. Now, I think they're both good stories. and I think they're both helpful as far as they go. But they show the power of perspective in general. But they don't go as far as the Bible does. Because the Bible is always centered on God and what God is doing in the circumstances. So friends, this is not just conjuring up positive thinking so that you can change your reality or convince yourself that it's going to be all right. You see, sometimes you can't change a reality, and sometimes it isn't and won't be all right. Instead, it's biblical thinking that looks to the God of our circumstances for what he has to teach us in those circumstances and what it is he's going to accomplish through those circumstances. When I was a boy growing up in church, my dad was a pastor, many of you know. And in our Sunday school class, uh, for a few years we had... You've heard me tell this before. We've had, we had a poster up in our on the wall, and it was in the design of the then-current uh, Coca-Cola ad. They've had a number of them over the years, uh, the real thing. But one of them at the time was Things Go Better With Coke. And so it was in the same kind of red and white design, Things Go Better With Coke, but instead of Things Go Better With Coke, it said Things Go Better With Jesus. Things go better with Jesus. Now, that's true if you understand it in a biblical way. But it can be easily misunderstood. Things go better with Jesus. You see, with Jesus, things don't necessarily change. And as I said earlier, actually with Jesus, things might get worse. It's not the things that change, but it's our view of those things that's radically changed. Our view of what's happening in our life is now from a different worldview. So I'm now looking at it from a radically different perspective. It's not things are randomly happening to me, and I'm a victim in a dark universe. Rather, God is at work in my life to produce good. Now, one final point on our attitude in trial, and that is we need to prepare for the test. When I took tests in high school and later in seminary, the instructors, I went to a Christian high school, the teachers and professors would often pray before class and on the days that they would pray before class that we were having a test, they would say things like, Lord, reward these students according to their preparation. I was thinking, what a lousy prayer that is. (laughs) I don't want to be rewarded according to my preparation. I want some divine intervention. <laughs> now. Infuse me. Now. But you see, friends, <clears throat> that's the way it is with the tests that God gives in life. When you're in it, it's usually too late. You prepare for it before it happens. You prepare for it every day as you interact with God. Every day as you think about God, every day as you pray to God, you're preparing for the next thing that's going to happen because that's going to determine the attitude, the perspective that you're going to bring to that circumstance. So now is the time to prepare for the next trial. Now is the time to, in your prayers, instead of in your prayers, treating God as if a heavenly waiter that is there to take our order. Let's be honest, that's what we do. Instead of treating God that way, we praise God in our prayers first and foremost. When we come to him, we talk about him for who he is. And then we make our request to God. And as we do that, we're preparing ourselves. We're thinking about who this God is and all of his character qualities and its attributes. And so then when we go into the trial, now this is not something foreign to us. It's something that we can summon now. And put into practice in the midst of the difficulty. You remember the model prayer that Jesus gave to his first followers. We call it the Lord's Prayer. As you've heard me say, it's really the disciples' prayer. It's not a prayer for Jesus. It's a prayer for us. He says, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. That's not a prayer for Jesus. He doesn't need forgiveness. So it's the disciples' prayer. But you remember how it starts. It starts with God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, pray like this. Pray like that. First, pray to your father about the father. And then pray to the father about the family. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Give us this day our daily bread. But always start with God. Why? What's God got to do with it? Everything. God is the designer of our circumstances. And God is the object, the end of our circumstances. What God has for us in that is, is that it produces this perseverance and then in turn we deal with it in, in wisdom and God accomplishes his, his goal in the midst of those circumstances. Now we're going to see what those are next week. That's why I have your outline listed the way I do. You notice that there's a gap between point two and point three and points three and four are way down at the bottom. We'll deal with those two next week. I want to end this way. Friends, notice how uh, verse 2 begins. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Do you see who that's written to? This is written to people in the family of God. This is written to people who know God. It's written to and it assumes people Who have a relationship with God. And so I want to spend our final moments asking you to ponder and consider. Do you have a relationship with God? Is he your father? Are you in his family? Do you go through life as if you are part of The family of God having been adopted, that's the Bible's language, adopted by God into his family, even though every one of us was born into this world as, quote, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, children of wrath. We were children of wrath, but by his grace we've been adopted into his family. He's become our father, and then we are brothers and sisters. Consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters. You see, friends, my concern is this. My concern is that you have people who attend church who don't know Jesus. And I'm not saying I know anybody who's in that situation. I'm just telling you as your pastor, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned that as we go through week after week. And we say, what does God have to do with it? And we try to show that this merciful, gracious God. Has done all of these things and is doing all of these things for us. That has little to no effect on some of us. And You see the reason for that is there needs to be a receptivity to the truth of the word of God. And the only way you have that receptivity is if you have the Holy Spirit. And you only have that Holy Spirit if you are in the family of God. And so when I say these things week after week that apply to believers and we come in and then we leave unchanged, we've got to ask ourselves, why is that? Am I being conformed to the image of Jesus, which is the goal of what God is doing in our lives so that we become like him so that when he looks at us, he sees his own character, a reflection of himself. Is that happening in our lives? Needs to be happening in each of our lives, day after day, continually. And so I'm asking you, I'm not trying to put a a gratuitous guilt trip on you, but I am asking you to examine. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Are you a child of God? And are you seeking God? And do you desire God? What does God have to do with it? Everything. And God's the goal. God's the end. So is that true of you? If you don't see that evidence in your life, if you don't see that desire in your life, if you're attending is because that's your habit or because other people in your family do it or because your children need Sunday school and so you show up with them, there can be all kinds of reasons that people attend church, but they're not born again. They don't know Jesus. Jesus. My brothers and sisters, consider it pure joy whenever. So how is it that I become a brother or sister? If God is working upon your heart and convicting your heart now, how do I do that? How do you respond to the work of the Holy Spirit on your heart right now in this sacred moment? Well, you do that by realizing you're a sinner. And your sin manifests itself like mine does in in different ways. Sin has personalities. (laughs) Depends on the person. It shows up in different ways. And it shows up in a myriad of ways, but all of them are contrary to God's character and His will for us. And so they are sin. One sin, one single sin, is cosmic treason against God and is enough to damn us to hell for eternity. Did you know that? So when we say realize you're a sinner, don't worry about the particular sin. (laughs) Doesn't matter, you're a sinner. So am I. That means we're separated from God because of our sin. It means we have to be reconciled to God, to have a relationship with him, to be brothers and sisters in his family. How does that happen? It happens only by the work of someone outside of us who has no sin. That someone is God, the son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he did was live the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we deserve. So recognize that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And that death on the cross was only effective because of the life that preceded it, which was absolutely perfect. And so God, the father accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, on my behalf. Realize you're a sinner, whatever shape that sin takes. Recognize that Jesus lived and died for you. And repent. Lord, I've come into this room today playing church. But I'm not sure I'm in your family. None of this really matters much to me. None of it makes any difference in my life. It hasn't to this point. But I realize today that I've been sinning against you in various ways. Going my own way. Handling things my own way. Responding to them my own way. Not to please you. Not with the goal of it being about you. And so I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus lived and died for me. And so now I'm giving my life to you. I'm going to go your way, not my way. That's what the third thing means. Repent. A change of mind that leads to a change of life. I repent. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We have a baptism coming up in November, November 11th. I would love nothing more than to have some people in our congregation who God in his grace has shown them, you've been outside my family, but I invite you to come in. And they've received that invitation. And now they're going to follow him in obedience and baptism to show that this new life has happened, this repentance has happened. I'm going to go in a new direction. So we're going to bow and pray. We bow and pray. We need to ask God a number of things. One, if we know him, if we are in his family, we need to ask God to help us in the circumstances that we are in. To bring glory to himself, to accomplish his purpose in producing perseverance. Ask him for the wisdom that James chapter 1 and verse 5 says that he will grant to us for the asking. So let's ask him that in our circumstances. That's for all of us as, as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And then for those who do not know Christ. When we bow from your heart to God, you say in your own words to him, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I give you my life. I want to go your way, not my way. He'll begin to change your life from the inside out. Let's bow together before the Lord. Our Father and our God, as we come before you, we do so. Acknowledging who you are. You're our creator. You're our master. You're our Lord. You're our gracious good God. You're the one who is in sovereign control of everything that happens in your world. You're the God who shows mercy. Who casts our sin away and refuses to, to remember it and to use it against us. Oh, thank you for forgiving God. And Lord, if you counted our sins against us, none of us would be able to ever stand before you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for that grace and mercy that's shown, especially in sending God, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you that on the cross we see your sovereign power there because you are orchestrating all of the circumstances for this to happen exactly as you had predicted, exactly as you desired. It shows us your justice, your righteousness, your holiness. You cannot tolerate sin. It must be paid for. But it shows us your love and your mercy and your grace as well because God the Son came to pay it for us. So we acknowledge you. We acknowledge who you are. We acknowledge that life is not about us, but it's about you. Your word begins in the beginning, God. And it's in the beginning, God, and in the end, God, and in between, it's all about our God. We thank you that you allow us to then play a role in what you are doing in your universe to bring glory to yourself. We thank you for... Reaching down at a point in time and calling us out of the world into yourself. By giving us the gospel message and your Holy Spirit moving upon our hearts. So that we see who we really are, who you really are. And we respond to the invitation of the gospel. I thank you for doing that for me when I was 19. And it was you who did it. Not me, only you. And so only you received the glory. Lord, in this room, there are many people who can remember the very time when you did that for them. Some were six, some were 16, some were 60. We thank you. And Lord, there are undoubtedly people in this room who don't know you. Who are not part of your family. Who have not embraced the gospel message and the Savior who's central to it. And so, oh, God, the Holy Spirit, we ask you to move upon their hearts. To have them see that they are going through life in a self-centered, not God-centered way. That they go through their circumstances seeking what they want out of it, not what you want out of it. That they go through their life with nary a thought of you. And if they do come to you, they ask so that they can spend it upon their own pleasures. It's about them. And so, Lord, we ask you to move on their hearts and and now, right now, begin the process of changing them from the inside out. Rescue, deliver, save them as you have done for me and others. Give them spiritual life so that they can respond now, believing, truly believing, and then growing in that belief as you put the tests of that faith to us throughout our circumstances. And, Lord, in all of this, we will give you the praise and the honor Because life and everything that happens in it is about you. Thank you, Lord, for this day, for these truths, and for what you are doing in our lives. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.